All right, hypothetical scenario here for you. Hypothetically speaking, you committed a very, very heinous crime. Your crime landed you in prison and uh, on death row to be exact. And uh, about a few minutes before the chair is going to be lit up, thus you will be lit up, um, the phone rings, the little bat phone rings, and it's the governor. And the governor talks to the executioner, the man who's going to flip the switch, and uh, there's an interaction, and he looks at you and says, you're free to go. And you're smiling, confused, but when you ask, why was there some issue with legal issue, or was, and you tried to understand, why did the governor make this decision to let you go? Uh, all the executioner said to you was five letters, mercy, that's it. And you walk out free. About 30 minutes later, you're now a free man, and you are walking out of the prison. And if you've ever seen, uh, at least on television, how execution goes, there's usually people there who are protesting, some people who are actually very excited that this is happening. So as you walk out amongst the crowds, you are not greeted with people who are just cheering for you, like so thankful that the governor demonstrated uh, mercy. You're actually greeted by uh, crowds and crowds of people who are chanting for your death people who are not cheering, but jeering you. And the guards are actually having to restrain people from getting to you because there's so much animosity towards you that you're now free. So my question in this hypothetical scenario is, how do you respond to those people, to the people that are jeering you, to the people who are calling for your execution, to the people who are saying obscene things? Is your response one of to shout obscenities back? to have a heart that's just angry of how they don't know me, how could they do that? And you start getting anger in your heart and it starts, words start flying out of your mouth in their direction. Or would your response be one of grace towards them? Hypothetical situation number two. Say that um, uh, you lied to someone, a close personal friend, someone that you've just done life with for a really long time, uh, you're tight with this individual. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, it happens so that you just lied to them. And uh, they found out about your lie. You're busted. You're caught. And it was a lie that was really a devastating lie. It really just broke confidence. It broke trust. It just hurt deep. And so you're feeling compelled. I need to go make this right. I need to go seek and ask forgiveness. And as you go to this individual, before you can even really get much of, I'm sorry, this is what happened. Will you please forgive me? The individual, your close friend, just looked at you and said, man, just stop talking. I just love you. I'm so happy that God has brought you into my life. I just love you. It's not a problem. Uh, we're tight. And you're like, oh, my goodness. And you just felt that bond of just friendship granted to you. Fast forward maybe two weeks. Two weeks go by, and uh, another close personal friend, because you have lots of close personal friends in this hypothetical scenario, comes to you and says, wow, you know what? I need to apologize to you. And you're like, oh, wow, for what? What's, what's going on? And they come to you and say, you know what? Uh, I've actually been lying to you about this, this one particular issue. And uh, I've just been, my heart's been heavy. I've just been really burdened about this thing that I've been, I've been lying to you about. And uh, will you please forgive me for the lie that I've been you know, telling you? Uh, and it's a pretty hurtful thing. Is your response one of grace? Is it one of mercy? Is it like your friend who said, 
you know, to you, oh, stop talking. I love you. I'm thankful for you. Uh, we're, we're friends. We're tight. We're okay. Or is your response one of how could you do such a thing to me? Is it one where you get historical on the person and be like, this is so typical of you. You've done this to me before, or you start bringing up all sorts of other issues when he's trying to ask for forgiveness for one. Two different scenarios, but in each of those scenarios, which would be your response? Would you be the person who is merciful and gracious because mercy and grace was extended to you in in some of those stories? Or would you be the person who just really struggles to be merciful, really struggles to be gracious? As I was just thinking about these two examples, what really uh, struck me at least was we're a very paradoxical people. Uh, Paradoxical in that when we mess up, we want people to forgive us. We want people to be kind to us. We We don't want people to hang over our heads our sin, our wrongdoing. We just want people to be gracious because we know we're imperfect. We know we're gonna make mistakes, but yet, when we are on the other end and we're the one who's in the wrong, or when the wrong is actually being done to us, the very thing that we are desperate and desire to be extended to us, we have the hardest time extending to other people. We're a paradox. We desire mercy, but yet we have the hardest time granting mercy. We want grace. We want forgiveness. We want love. We want acceptance. We don't want people reminding us of our sin and being historical on us moving forward. We want those things, but yet when it's our turn to give it, we have a really difficult time uh, giving that to people. I mentioned this uh, last week specifically, but how you live your life matters to God. Uh, Specifically, how you live in relationship with God, and then specifically how we live in relationship with one another. Now, over the past few weeks specifically, we've been looking at how do we apply all of what God has done for us, specifically the mercies of God, how do we apply the mercies of God to how we live our life? And uh, in Romans chapter 12, through the end of Romans, Paul is painting a picture, a portrait of what it looks like to be the person who has been impacted, transformed by God's mercies. Last week, specifically, we looked at the call, if you've been impacted by the mercies of God, then you will have a sincere love for people. Sincere defined as a love that is unhypocritical. And then today, specifically, we're going to look at how do you relate with people? How do you have relationships with people who hurt you, who sin against you, who persecute you, who do wrong to you? Whether they are known to you or not known to you, how do you respond to the people in your life uh, who hurt you? Uh, If you have a Bible, uh, open up to Romans 12, and I'm going to read these verses, and then as we typically do each week, uh, I'm going to walk through each of these verses seeking to answer really one question, how should the mercies of God impact how I relate with people, specifically those who hurt me, those who sin against me, those who persecute me? Uh, Verse 12, or I'm sorry, chapter 12, starting at verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not, I repeat, do not take revenge, my friends. And friends is translated as my beloveds. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Verse 21, do not, over, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's start with uh, verse 14. And uh, verse 14 simply says, uh, bless those who persecute you. Uh, bless and do not curse. Now, it seems like a pretty simple command, uh, but it's actually very difficult uh, to put this command into practice because the last thing that we want to do when someone has hurt us, wounded us, persecuted us, uh, done something to harm us or even harm those around us, our first thought is, well, how can I just bless them? Our first thought is, how quickly can I put my fist through their face? How quickly can I use a word that would just sting, that would just stick, that would just kind of sink deep into the core of who they are, and it would just really hurt them and wound them? So verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Uh, I'm going to give us five things as we walk through this passage, and the very and all of these things are how do we live in relationship with other people who hurt us, persecute us, in light of God's mercies to us? So number one is actively bless people with your words. Now, this is not a brand new command. This is the people in Rome would not be hearing this and be like, wow, we've never heard such a thing like this. Uh, if they were familiar with Jesus' teaching, which they would have been, they would have been very familiar with what Jesus said in Luke uh, chapter 6. He says, But I tell you, you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now, have you ever heard someone tell you or just give you the advice or the counsel? You know, when someone's just doing you wrong, if someone's giving you a hard time, if they're being mean, if they're being cruel, just ignore them. Just walk away. Just avoid them. If you see them in the room, just go to a different room. Like, just get yourself out of that situation, as it were. But I have a hard time with that advice. It might be easy. It might be helpful to avoid that person, but it's not biblical advice. Biblical advice is actually actively go out of your way to bless that person. Actively go out of your way to use your words to bless them. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, I think most of us would agree this is a pretty hard thing to do. It just is. Now, why is it so hard for us that when we get hurt, wounded, to have words of blessing, words of just love, words of grace, words of mercy come out of our mouths? And as I was thinking about this, the, really the first thought that came to mind is, well, I think it's really so difficult because most of our wells are empty. If the well, if, if your heart is a well and the tongue is a bucket, the lips can only draw from what is in the well. 
So it's not that we actually don't know how to speak words of blessing. It's not that we can't form the words, I love you, I forgive you, uh, whatever the blessing might actually be. It's that there's nothing in our heart towards that person to speak words of blessing or affirmation or just to speak kindly to them. But this is what Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Now, the word bless is actually to speak well of. It's the word we use for eulogy. If you've ever been to a funeral or memorial service, there's usually someone who gives, eulogizes uh, the deceased individual. Uh, Now, I've been to and and done a lot of different funerals, and um, maybe you've had this experience, but I've never heard someone get up at a eulogy and say, well, this person was just, man, he was a cruel individual. I am just thankful that he's dead. And, you know, actually, I'm hoping that he's, on, on the hot side of eternity, not the, I've never heard someone do that. Even if it was a tough person, and I've seen this before, where it was a son eulogizing a father who was not a great father. I've never seen a eulogy where someone bashed the person, but they did whatever they could to, to speak kindly. So the command here is that we would eulogize people and not wait until they're dead to do it. That we would eulogize people while they are alive that we would use our words to bless and to encourage and to just to love. Now, I know this is so counter to what our first reaction would be. But again, the problem is not that we don't know how to speak words. It's that our heart is just running on empty. And what we actually need is not a lesson in language. We need God to really just pour his grace, his mercy into our hearts so that when we get hurt, sinned against, wounded, persecuted, When someone curses you, someone curses us, what flows out of my heart is what God has planted deep within my heart. Love, kindness, encouragement, affection, mercy. First thing is actively bless people with your words. Now, on a very, I think, practical uh, level, you need to decide to do this today. And what I mean by that is if you wait until you get into that moment, your first reaction will not be, I've been waiting for this moment, so I'm ready just to bless you. If you do not decide what you will do tomorrow, today, then when tomorrow comes and tomorrow's insults come, you will not have thought through and planned ahead that no matter what they say, my first response, my first reaction is going to be to bless this person, no matter what they say. So the challenge is decide today what you will do tomorrow, because if you wait until tomorrow, the curse will come, and I fear what would happen is a curse would flow out, and then you walk away, man, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Well, you need to think about what your response would be now to what people will say tomorrow. So that's number one, actively participate with others in their lives. So if number one is actually bless people, number two of how we demonstrate to those who hurt us, uh, to those who maybe persecute us, how we demonstrate God's mercy is number two, actively participate with others in their lives. Verse 15 says this, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Now you may have, even if you're not too familiar with the Bible, that may be a verse you're very familiar with of rejoice with those who are rejoicing and and mourn with those who mourn. But my question is, is it possible to participate in someone else's joy without feeling like their win is a loss to you? 
I think what happens is we don't like rejoicing with someone else because their gain, their victory, their win somehow is a defeat for me or somehow is a loss for me. And it shouldn't be that way. If God has impacted you, his grace and his mercy, if the gospel has grabbed hold of your life, when someone wins, when there's a victory, you celebrate with them. You enter into that with them because it's not a loss for you. You didn't get beat somehow just because someone else got something. Now, let me ask you a series of questions and see how this resonates. If you're single, when you hear someone else has gotten engaged, do you celebrate? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that God has raised up a godly man or a godly woman in that person's life. Or do you quietly murmur to yourself, what's up with this? Where's my girl? Where's my guy? Is your first, I'm not talking about like the response you wish you had, like five weeks later, but your initial, someone gets engaged. And by the way, this is a real example in our community because people are, have, over the past few years have gotten engaged like crazy. That's a good thing, but if you're a community that has a lot of single people, it would be very easy for you to have just resentment in your heart. How about if you're married and you're without kids, and when you hear that someone is pregnant with like their 12th child, and you're just dying to have one. And number 12, it's an official football team, or 11. How many ever people? 13? I don't know. Is your first response, man, don't they have enough already? Like, where is my child? Do you rejoice, or do you just quietly murmur to yourself? How about maybe in... Um, if you're unemployed, someone gets a job, and it's a job that's going to pay them a billion dollars just to sit around and do nothing. Check Facebook all day. That's their job. Do you look at that person, and do you rejoice with them? And be like, you know, I'm so thankful that they were unemployed, but now they're employed. I'm so thankful that God has provided for them. And do you enter into that, or do you quietly murmur to yourself, be like, I've been sending out resumes. I've been looking. I've been doing everything. They didn't even do anything. They just hung out on Facebook and someone gave them a billion dollars. Or do you just rejoice with them? If you're employed, but someone ahead of you gets fired, do you quietly think to yourself, sweet, now I might be able to slide up into that position? Or does your heart just break? Does your heart just say, wow, they, they don't have a job anymore. They have a family. They have responsibilities. They have bills. Do you enter into their hardship? Do you mourn with them or do you quietly, secretly, obviously you don't say this out loud like, sweet, I'm so glad you're gone because now I'm one step closer. But do you think in your heart? Last one, if you're married and when you hear of someone else whose marriage is just a mess, do you quietly think to yourself, sweet, I'm glad that they're not the only ones going through it. And there's some aspect in a sick way of celebrating someone else's mess because you know yours is a mess. Or is there something in you that just your heart breaks? I'm so sad that their marriage is apart. I'm so sad that there's division, that there's unforgiveness, that there's bitterness. The Bible says that we are to just rejoice with those who rejoice and that we are to mourn with those who mourn. 
Now, I'm personally very thankful that not everyone can always see my heart, but the reality is God can see my heart, and God knows when I'm rejoicing with those who rejoice or when I'm rejoicing when someone else actually is mourning and flipping around the verse. God knows our heart. God knows your heart. So even though you might be able to paint a a smile on that looks like you're rejoicing, if in your heart their gain is somehow a loss to you, God can see that. And what God desires is something better for you that you would enter into their joy. Now, again, practically speaking, what does this look like? In a very just simple, practical way. And I'll give you just two. Allow people to talk about what they're excited about without copying an attitude of enough already. Like, have you ever come across someone, they're just so excited to tell you some good news, and you're thinking in your head, all right, I don't really care about your good news. Like, my news in my world is not so good, so I'm really not all that interested in hearing about your good news. Well, rejoicing with those who rejoice is enter into that with that person. Be excited when they're excited. This is a a silly example, but have you ever seen someone get a new car, or at least a new car to them? It might be like a 1984 piece of junk, but it's new to them, and they love it. And they're just so excited for you to see it, for you to sit in it and smell it and just look at it. And you're like, I could care less if you have a new car or not. Well, someone who actually knows how to rejoice with those who rejoice would go to that person and say, man, I'm really, can I sit in it with you? Take me for a drive and let's hear how the radio sounds and let's see how this thing handles. Like, enter into the joy with them, whatever the circumstance might be. The mourning situation, I think typically we allow people to, or the challenge is allow people to mourn without the attitude of, dude, get over it already. It's not that big of a deal. Like if I was in your situation, I'd be a little bit tougher and I wouldn't have gone through three tissue boxes. If someone is mourning, it's their pain. It's not your pain. Enter into it with them. Now, I think most people have a hard time with this one specifically because well, I don't, if I enter into their pain, I just don't know what to say. Well, do you realize that sometimes the best thing to do is say nothing and just sit there? I remember my first real hard thing I went through as a youth pastor years ago was one of my kids committed suicide. And I was 24, 25 at the time. And it wasn't like I had all this wealth of experience and knowledge of, wow, how do you, how do you talk to the parents about this? How do you? And so I went and within like three hours of the police telling the parents and going through all of this, I'm with the parents, and as you can only imagine, they are a mess. And in my mind, I was like, I have, God, I have no idea what to say, what to do. I've never been through this. I can't even imagine what they're going through. And you know what God told me to do? Just go sit with them. And so I sat with them for three or four hours and just cried my eyes out with them. And they came back weeks later, and they said, Michael, of all the people that came, and we appreciated what you did. And I'm not saying this because I... God told me to do that. My point is just learn to sit with people. Don't feel like you have to fix them. Don't feel like you've got to counsel them. Don't feel like you've got to come up with some great thing to say to them to make them feel better. If someone is mourning, mourn with them. And mourning means sit with them where they are and just love them. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse. Bless them. The second verse 
was uh, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. The third one, number three, Romans 12, 16 says this, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. So number three is actively pursue making sweet music with others in the church. He's talking about some relationships that we would have with one another. And I think specifically to those that are in the community of of God's people, God's children, those who are followers of Christ. Actively pursue making sweet music with others in the church. Now, I'm sure you've listened to music at some point in your life. Have you ever listened to live music and there was live vocalists and they just went off key? You don't have to be like a great musician to hear like, I, I can't do it myself, but I know that doesn't sound right. You've ever seen a situation where they're singing and you're like, oh, please, my ears just stop. It, it hurts. Like, you're not even close to whatever key you're supposed to be hitting. So we all know what it sounds like or uh, to have someone sing off key, and it's not pretty. Well, in reality, I think what Paul's heart here is, is that we would foster a community that's not in competition with one another to see who is the best and the greatest but that we would be a community that learns how to sing together, to make music together, to learn how to complement one another and not be in competition with one another, that we would have a harmonious community. And by the way, if you know anything about music, and I'm not a great musician by any stretch of the imagination, but when you sing harmonies, you don't sing the same thing. You actually, there's different, two different voices doing two different things, but when you put them together and they harmonize together, it's amazing. It sounds richer. It sounds fuller. So we're not trying to have a community that's we all look exactly the same. We all sound exactly the same. We're trying to have a community of diverse people coming together in community, in relationship, and the song that is coming forth from this church, from this community, is a sweet sound to Jesus. Now, observation, and I think you would agree, it doesn't really take much to throw a bunch of other people off key. If one person goes off key, it's easy to kind of follow them. Like, you ever been singing in church, and the person up front, they get off key, and you're like, oh, man, now I'm singing off key, and I can't get my voice back. It just takes one person to throw it all off, and Paul identifies the thing that throws off a community in terms of relationship. Did you catch what he said? Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Pride, Paul points to this one specifically and says, pride will kill the song of the church. Pride will kill the song of the community. When there are people who are just thinking that they are better than everyone else and they walk around the church with an attitude, if people could be as spiritual as me, if people could be as Jesus-esque as I am, then this church would be so much better. If people would just do what I do, then we would just really be killing it as a church. Well, that's, that's, that's called pride. And that's not what we want to introduce into the song that we are singing. Not pride, but humility, as he says, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Now, question before I move on to to, to number four. What is the song that is coming from this church? 
Now, some might be brand new today, and so you're like, I don't know. I'm not sure. Some might be here a few weeks, and you're like, I I think I have an idea, and some may have been coming for a long time. But what is the song that's coming from within this church community called Genesis? Listen to what happens after church is over today. After this gathering ends and the peace out is given, watch what happens. It happens every week. We're so excited to see the people that we typically don't get to see during the week. And so you know what happens? Is as soon as church, the gathering, is over, we get into our little pockets of people. And my, what I love doing is just, I love meeting as many people as I possibly can on Sunday morning. And as I'm in conversation with people, it always absolutely just breaks my heart when I see someone and like, I don't have a pocket to stand in. And they're just standing there by themselves because everyone else has clumped together under the mentality of, I don't get to see you during the week. I love you. I miss you. And we just need to hug each other right now. And then we'll leave. I'm not saying that's sinful. I'm not saying that's, that's bad. But what I'm saying is that there are other people who don't have what you have in relationship. And they're standing on the outside looking in thinking, I wish I had a pocket of people to connect with. See, the song that should be being sung from this community is that all are welcome. That we would never look at someone and say, well, you don't look like me. You don't dress like me. You don't think like me. You don't talk like me. So therefore, you're not in my pocket. Because there's no way you and I could ever have a, a relationship. You have tattoos and funny hair. So how would you and I ever connect? It's not possible. Or for the tattoo funny hair guy to look at someone who's like, well, you just look like you live in a library. So I would never have any connection with you. See, that's what happens in the world. And actually, as I was reading this, I was like, this is high school. It reminds me of what my high school experience was. Just pockets of people, the cool people, the good-looking people, the sports people, the smart people. That's not what the church is supposed to look like. One community, many people, no one copying a prideful attitude of I'm better, I'm greater, and all are welcome. Why? Well, because of God's mercy to me. What does that mean? Well, God was merciful to me and didn't say, well, you wouldn't fit in my family, therefore you're out. God looked and said, you'd make a good fit. You'd make a good fit. You'd make a good fit. Number three was actively pursue making sweet music with others in the church. Number four, two more to go. Actively seek to do right by all, including those who hurt you. Romans 12, a few verses, 17 and 18. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If possible, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Those are some challenging two verses right there. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. We live in a world that is very tit-for-tat approach to relationships. Well, he did this to me, therefore I'm going to do that to him. And if you have a very tit-for-tat approach to relationships, guess what? You will never have a meaningful, healthy, God-honoring relationship. Because when they do wrong, you do wrong right back. Why? Because they did it to you. They hurt you, you hurt them, we're, we're square, we're equal. But God says, God's word says, do not repay evil for evil. 
tit for tat just only breeds further quarrel, only breeds further division. Are you a grace person or are you a karma person? Okay, two different people. Are you a grace person or are you a karma person? Are you the type that says you get what you deserve and I just happen to be the guy that's going to give you what you deserve? What goes around comes around. That's karma. I think that's crap, by the way, but that's what people believe is called karma. But the reality is there are people who approach relationships like karma. Or are you a grace person? You're the person, you're the individual, the man or the woman who is bent on giving what is not, to de- giving what is not deserved to those who don't deserve it. You see, if the mercies of God have impacted you, you will not be the karma person, but you will be the grace person. And the sad reality is about the karma people, the karma person, is that you're actually giving people a dose of false religion. You're giving people a dose of what, is, what God's not like. If you're a Christian and you're the person who's just giving what you think people deserve, you are not modeling for them. You're actually painting a horrific picture of what God is not like. But if you're the grace person giving people what they don't deserve because that's what God did for you, then you're painting a portrait of the gospel. You're painting a portrait of this is what God's like. God is gracious. He gives to those what they don't deserve. He gives them generously and in abundance. Now, if you're a Christ follower, it's not a choice. It's it's not an option. If you follow Christ, then we are called to imitate, to mimic Christ. And I love this verse. It's incredibly challenging, but 1 Peter says this in chapter 2. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was a grace person. He wasn't a karma person. He wasn't sitting on the cross saying, oh, you just wait. He was actually on the cross saying, Father, forgive him. Father, he used his words to bless, not to curse. He was a grace person. Now, again, practically speaking, how do we be grace people and not karma people? Okay, I'll give you three very quick ones. Number one is this. Don't treat people in accordance with, with how they sinned against you. Don't do it. Don't repay evil for evil, but if you're a follower of Christ, you're called to a higher standard. Don't treat people as you think their sins deserve. Psalm 103 says this. This is God. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As, uh, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Rather than meet evil with evil, you meet it with forgiveness. If you would be a grace person, you'd be the person who forgives. Not because it was asked, not because it was deemed worthy on your part. Well, because God forgave you. There wasn't a sin 
that you've ever committed or could ever commit where God said, no, that's beyond forgiveness there. I don't know what you're going to do, but you're in trouble. If you'd be a grace person, then you would be one who forgives. Now, some of you might be, Michael, you just don't know what that person did. And you're right. I, I don't know what that person did. The person who you're thinking of right now, of how badly they hurt you, abused you. But I have to ask a hard question to you. And I, it's not that I'm hard to whatever your situation may have been or currently is. But is there any crime that has been ever committed against us that was greater than the crime we committed against a holy God? No. Now, your pain, it's your pain, and I understand that, but there is no crime that has ever been committed against me or could ever be committed against me. And you could come up with whatever horrific scenario that would even touch the crime that I have committed against God when I sinned and rebelled against a holy and perfect God. A holy and perfect God looked at me and said, you are forgiven. If we refuse to forgive people, it is a telltale sign that either you just haven't experienced the gospel. You have not experienced the grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. Or you may know Jesus, but you've just taken his grace for granted. Is there something, honestly, that someone could ever do to you that you would come to the conclusion of, I can't forgive them, it's just it's too much? Now, I'm not saying that forgiveness is easy. I've met too many people, Michael, I just can't forgive. Well, forgiveness is rarely easy, but please know that it's not impossible. I think people who have been wounded deeply and say, I just can't forgive, well, what their prayer needs to be is not, God, help me to forgive this person. Their prayer is, God, penetrate my heart deeper with your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. God, you've forgiven me with so much. Let me be an extension of that grace to this person. I said I'd give you three. Here's number two of how we be grace people, not karma people. Number two is do good to those who seem bent on doing you wrong. Practically speaking, what that means is you be a person who knows how to forbear. I think sometimes people, they don't sin against us. They just do things that annoy us. They do things that hinder us, frustrate us, maybe hurt us. Sometimes it's sin, sometimes it's not. But if you would be a grace person, then you need to be, as Paul says in verse 18, do good to those who seem bent on doing you wrong. And a quick definition of forbearance, by the way, is forbearance means that there will be, you're giving people time and space to be what God has created them to be. They might not be where you are, but neither were you at one point. Someone was forbearing with you. Someone was gracious to allow you to grow. Be forbearing to those who hurt you. It might not be sin. It could just be an annoyance, but be a forbearing person person. Number uh, three of being a grace person versus a karma person, uh, and this one's, I think, real challenge is let it go. Three words, let it go. If you would be a grace person, you need to just let it go. He says this in verse 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do you know how much depends on you? A lot. 
And do you know what happens when things happen to us and we don't let them go? We sit in it, we stew in it. We just become these hard-hearted, cold individuals. As I was uh, preparing this week, this one really hit me hard. And I honestly just felt like the Spirit of God was telling me, Michael, when you tell them to let it go, make it really clear. I really honestly felt like, I don't know if there's just one person in here or there are many people in here, but you need to hear from God to you, whatever it is, let it go. It's killing you. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, and if it's just you that I'm talking to right now, it's God speaking to you to say, let it go. If you would be a grace person, not a karma person, you need to let it go. As far as it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Number five, we'll finish up with this one. This is, again, I'm trying to hit home. If the mercies and grace of God have impacted you, this is how they will impact the relationships that we have with people, specifically those who hurt us. Number five, actively heap burning coals on people's heads. Romans 12, verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you haven't been thinking of someone already, uh, bring to mind now the person who just hurt you, the person who's wounded you, the person who's persecuted you. It could be your own spouse. It could be a mom. It could be a dad, a brother, a sister, a close personal friend. It could just be someone at work who just seems bent on making your life a mess. What is it, for that person, how would you answer this question? What do you honestly think that they need most in your life, in their life? The person who is just bent on doing harm to you. What is it that they need most in their life? How would you answer that question? Do they need your revenge, your payback, your vengeance, or do they need God's grace? How would you answer that question? Because how you answer that question will determine what you do to those who do harm to you, to those who do evil to you, to those who persecute you. Maybe answer this question, which would lead to them repenting so that what they're doing to you, they wouldn't do to anyone else moving forward. Which would cause them to repent? Your wrathful, vengeful, angry hand raised high coming down hard on them? Or would what would lead them to repentance would be the grace of God at work in their life? Now, I hope you're coming to the conclusion of, yeah, actually, they don't need my vengeance. They don't need my wrath. Actually, if they're going to repent from what they're doing, then they need grace. Okay, let me ask another question. How would they even know what grace looks like? Is it possible that maybe God has put that person in your life, not to make your life miserable, but so that you, someone who has come into contact with Jesus, his grace and his mercy would be an extension of grace to that person? I kind of think maybe that's why God allows us to endure pain and persecution and people coming against us 
so that we would be extension of God's grace to that person. Can you imagine if that person persecuted someone who had no idea about God's grace, God's mercy? Well, what would happen? A full-blown fight, a full-blown division in that relationship. There would be no possibility of reconciliation because that person doesn't know how to reconcile. They don't know about that. They don't know about grace. So I consider it a gift from God that he would allow us to be persecuted, people to come hard against us. Why? Not so God, not God's trying to make your life miserable. God wants to use you to help lead other people to repentance. And the way they get led to repentance is through your gracious hand being extended to them, not your fist. Now, I know the first thought that people typically have is, I can't be gracious because if I'm gracious, then they'll get away with it. Who They won't, they'll just get off the hook. And they've done too much pain. They've caused too much damage. They need to pay for what they've done. Now, I appreciate that we have this sense of justice in ourselves, but our sense of justice is driven by our fear, our selfishness, our pride, our anger. The only one who can be just is God because his justice leads to repentance, is redemptive, and God's justice is holy. And for those of you who are thinking, well, that person is just going to get off the hook if I am gracious to them, just so you know, including you, no one will ever get off the hook. Okay, We will all have to give an account for our lives to a holy God. I like how the author of Hebrews said it. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything uncovered and is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him uh, to whom we must give an account. No one will get off. So the person that you just don't want to be gracious to because you think they're going to get off, they'll have to give an account for what they've said, for what they've done, for how they've treated you or mistreated you, for how they've ignored you or neglected you, Whatever their pain towards you was, they will have to give an account. But the flip side of that is, so will you. So will you. If we respond to people, and I will be God's unrighteous hand of justice on this person, I will have to give an account for the times that I take vengeance, or I repay evil with evil rather than repaying evil with good. Now, I love this um, this imagery of burning coals, uh, because Paul says, in your acts of kindness, what you actually are doing is heaping burning coals on someone's head. By the way, I want to be clear, you're not throwing coals at people, okay? You're heaping coals on top of their head. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, there's a great story of a prophet named Isaiah. And Isaiah, when he realized that he was just a sinner who was undone before a holy and a righteous God. He prays, my goodness, what what am I to do? I am this great, horrific sinner. He says in verse 5 of Isaiah 6, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal, live meaning a burning coal, in his hands, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. A burning coal used in a process of redemption. 
I just want you to know that your act of kindness in response to someone's evil towards you, your act of grace or mercy or a word of blessing would be used by God as a burning coal in a redemptive way in that person's life. As you're thinking about this person, and maybe it's a group of people, who do you need to begin to heap burning coals on so that God would use you to redeem that person? Rather than drive that person further away from the gospel, drive that person further away from the grace of God, God would use you to be an example, to draw them closer as you drop burning coals on their head, a coal of kindness, a coal of love, a coal of affection, a coal of forgiveness. Those are all burning coals that God would use in a redemptive way. Five things. Actively bless people with your words. Actively participate with others in their lives. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Actively pursue making sweet music with others in the church. Number four, actively seek to do right by all, including those who hurt you. And number five, actively actively heap burning coals on people's heads. If you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, then you understand better than anyone else on the planet what grace and mercy means. Because you received Jesus by grace, by his mercy, not because you worked or got your way there on your own accord. So if the gospel is in your heart, what the gospel begins to do is transform your heart to be gracious, to be merciful, especially to those who don't know mercy, who don't know grace, and they lash out towards you in evil and harm and seeking not your good, but your destruction. If you're a Christian, it is our joy, not just responsibility, to be the hands and feet, the heart of Jesus to a world who is desperate need of knowing grace and knowing mercy. And we get to do that. I'm not suggesting that it's easy because I know what it's like to have been hurt and wanted to lash out in my pain to wound back. But there's a better way. And the better way is to allow the gospel at work in me, flowing through me to touch that person's life so that they too would be redeemed and would know grace and mercy. I want to spend some time praying and give you the opportunity just to sit with the Lord. I trust that as we've looked at his word, God's been speaking to you. I believe specifically about some relationships that you have where you've not been gracious. You've not been kind and merciful. They've not been burning coals of redemption on people's heads. They've been rocks. And I would call, if you have been doing that, repent of that and pray and ask God to fill your heart with grace And just mercy from him so you could give it to those around you. And if you're here today and you don't know who Jesus is, you've never received the gospel. You will never be able to do the things that I'm talking about. Be merciful and gracious and kind until you've experienced that for yourself of God at work in your life. My heart would be that you would receive the gospel today, that you would receive Jesus today. Not based on your works, your good looks, your good performance but because you're a sinner and God says, I love you, I have mercy for you, and it's demonstrated in my son, Jesus.